0: listening to sermon audio from First Baptist Church of Van Holsteen. For more information about First Baptist Church and our services, please visit www.fbcva.com. 12, First Corinthians chapter 12. It is a joy to see you this morning. As you know, my family is extremely thankful for you and for all that you do to love us and to pray for us and to support us And for that, we are very thankful. But I'm not going to get into all of that today, because we have a Bible text to look at. So I hope you have your Bible open to 1 Corinthians 12. We will be looking at verses 1 through to 11. Now, Jeremiah Johnson, maybe that's a name you've heard, he was an individual who came to prominence in 2015. You see, in 2015, he had a YouTube channel and a ministry as a so-called prophet with only a few followers. But over the next year, he made a prophecy that flung him into the spotlight. Early on, he predicted that God had given him a word, a special word of knowledge that Donald Trump was going to become president. And so in 2016, as many, you know, political analysts and experts were surprised as Donald Trump won the presidency, Jeremiah Johnson ascended into the spotlight. And he remained there for four years with a YouTube channel with hundreds of thousands of followers, with a Facebook ministry with hundreds of thousands of followers. He would make prophecies as he said the Lord gave him a special word about different things that would happen. And so last year, in 2020, about a year ago, you can go on YouTube and you can see the video of a prophecy he made where he said three things would happen. Okay? Number one, God gave him a vision and a special word that the LA Dodgers would win the World Series. You didn't know that God was a baseball fan, did you? Second, God gave him a prophecy that Amy Coney Barrett would be seated as a Supreme Court Justice during President Trump's first term. And third, that Donald Trump would decisively win the election and remain president for four more years. Well, the Dodgers won the World Series. Amy Coney Barrett was seated on the Supreme Court. And Jeremiah Johnson said that he woke up in November after the election and he was disillusioned. Had God given him a false word? Now, there were other so-called prophets who they received words from the Lord as well that President Trump would win the election and would remain as president. And so they responded in a different way than Jeremiah Johnson. One so-called prophet who had hundreds of thousands of followers on Facebook, he said that the military would take over and would assure that President Trump would remain in the White House indefinitely. Another so-called prophetess, who has hundreds of thousands of followers on Facebook, she said that even if, from a worldly view, Joe Biden is in the White House, from the heavenly view, Donald Trump is still president. Now, who's right? Because they're not all right. I don't care about the politics, right? I'm not here to talk about the politics. I'm here to talk about something that is much more important than the politics. How can you decide what is a true word or work from God? How can you discern whether or not someone who says that they're doing something in the name of the Lord or they say that they have a message from the Lord, how can you discern whether or not it is true? Now, there are various places in Scripture where we are given criteria for determining these things, but in our passage today, I believe that Paul gives us two main criteria for helping to think through this type of question. And it's a very it's a very important question even if we're not talking about prophecy. I'm old enough to remember in the late 80s and the 90s whenever at certain revival movements people started do you remember this saying that during during the revival gold fillings appeared in their mouth. Anybody remember this? There were other there were other revivals that were happening where people were saying that the Holy Spirit filled them and that they couldn't help but lay on the floor and laugh for hours. Or that the Holy Spirit filled them and they would start going up and down the aisles of the church barking like a dog. Now, how do we know, is this a true word or work of God? maybe you would say, well, healings. If healings occur, then it must be from the true God. I can give you examples of Buddhist priests who will tell you all of the healings that have happened in their ministry. Down in Plano at Parker and Independence, There is a temple to Sai Baba. Sai Baba, at his death, had over a million followers in India and claimed thousands of miracles. Maybe you would say, well, speaking in tongues is clear evidence of the Spirit at work. And so, if they're speaking in tongues, then we should trust that this is true. I can take you to villages in Indonesia where there are Muslims who speak in tongues. How can we determine whether a word or work is truly from God? I think our passage gives us two criteria, and we see it right here in the text. Verses 1 through to 3 are the first main idea, and then verses 4 through to 11 are the second main idea. So let's get into the text. Let me read to us verses one through to three, where we will see that the Spirit's work exalts Jesus. Let me read this. I'm reading out of the NIV. Now, about the gifts of the Spirit, brothers and sisters, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagan, somehow or other, you were influenced and led astray to mute idols. Therefore, I want you to know that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus be cursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So here we see that the first criteria for determining whether or not something is truly a work or a word from God is whether or not it exalts Jesus. How do we see this here? Well, look at verse 1. Last week, Pastor Griff preached about the Lord's Supper, and that, that is what Paul was speaking about. But then in verse 1, notice, it says, now, concerning spiritual gifts, or about the gifts of the Spirit. He's changing topics, and Paul wants them to focus on spiritual gifts, and he says, I do not want you to be uninformed. Now, this is a phrase that Paul uses a couple times in 1 Corinthians. It does not mean that he's just giving them information, right? In fact, we see in the other places where this phrase is used that he's telling them something that they already know, but he's reiterating it to them. He's saying it again so that it sinks in and they really grasp this knowledge. In other words, this is something that is very important for the Corinthian church. You need to know, oh Corinth, about spiritual gifts. But notice his argument, verse 2. He takes them back to their lives as pagans. Now, what's a pagan? Well, in Corinth, it just means that they were uh, that they had previously been another religion before they were Christian. Like in the city where our family lives in Southeast Asia, or like in large parts of Dallas today, there are people who worship various gods. You can see a temple here, a temple there, another temple there, a mosque here, a false church here. You can see all sorts of people worshiping, All sorts of gods. And that's the way it was in Corinth as well. But they came to Christ. And so they were formerly pagans, but now they're in Christ. But Paul is taking them back to remember their lives as pagans. And he says, somehow or other, I love that, right? Somehow or other, you were led astray to mute idols. We live in a context in Southeast Asia where many people have idols in their home. Many people, you walk into their house and the first thing you see is an altar with an ancestral tablet on top so that uh, people can pray to their ancestors, usually some form of incense around it to offer up prayers, and then they'll have various gods or goddess statues around the altar. Now, what's interesting is that those idols didn't walk up and sit on top of that altar by themselves. Somebody had to craft that idol. They had to make it. They had to paint it. They had to take it. They had to purchase it. They had to set it up on that altar because it's lifeless. It doesn't speak. It can't do anything. It is a mute idol. But what Paul is saying here in verse 2 is there's something that happened. There is somehow or some way that you were led astray even to mute idols who don't have a message, who don't have a word. So what was it? I think, based on the context of this passage, that it was most likely some of the things that Paul lists later on. Maybe it was a priest claiming a word of knowledge. Maybe it was someone claiming a healing in the name of that idol. Maybe it was someone speaking in tongues and saying that that came about because of the power of that idol. And so somehow or other, they were led astray. But notice verse 3. Verse 3 is where it builds to, and that's why it begins with that very important biblical word, therefore. Therefore, I want you to know that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus be cursed. And then he's going to flip it around and focus on Jesus as Lord. But first, let's talk about that phrase, Jesus be cursed. Why would he say that? Some people say that Paul is just using rhetoric here. He's saying, you know, nobody, even if somebody were to possibly think of You know, someone saying, Jesus, be cursed. There's no way that that could ever come about by the Holy Spirit. So maybe it's just rhetoric. I don't think that's likely. I think there were actually people saying, Jesus is cursed. Now, who are the possibilities? Well, a number of scholars think that in this verse, you have a picture of Jews who they hear about the Messiah And they reject Jesus as the Messiah. And they say, stay away from those Christians over there. Jesus is cursed. But another option, and I think this one is quite interesting, is that these are Christians, or so-called Christians, who are being asked to worship the Caesars. You see, this is in Corinth. In every ancient major Roman city, they had a statue to the Caesar or to a member of the Caesar's family, maybe to Augustus or to Tiberius or to Julius Caesar himself, and they would be asked as political patriotism, as nationalism, to go to this statue to offer incense and to say two words, Kaiser Curios, Caesar is Lord. And by default, when a Christian does that, they have to say Jesus is cursed and Caesar is Lord. And so Paul is just making the point, whether or not we're speaking about Jews or we're speaking about apostatizing Christians, you can't do that by the Spirit of God. God's Spirit is never going to motivate someone to say, Jesus is cursed. Instead, and he flips it around, second half of verse 3, look at it. No one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. Such a powerful verse. Now, what Paul is talking about here is not just someone who, based on their culture or nominally calls themselves a Christian and says, oh yeah, yeah, Jesus is Lord, right? He's talking about serious, authentic faith. Think about what this meant in Corinth. If you said Jesus is Lord, you're saying that Caesar is not. You're making a very strong political statement, and this is the very most basic Christian belief and statement. In the country where we live, we have been under lockdown like you can't even imagine since last March, right? Our church has only been able to meet in person for six weeks. And I praise God because there were two weeks back in April whenever we were allowed to meet together. And one of those Sundays, we had a baptism service. And it was awesome. Three people got baptized, one of which is my beloved daughter, Abby. And I got into the kiddie pool because that's how we roll. And Abby got in the water with me, and I asked her three questions. First question, do you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord? Basic Christian belief. Number two, do you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead? It's not just something you say. This is something you believe in your heart. Third question, and this is one that I, that I ask to kind of reiterate that first question. If people were to come along and were to take away everything you own and everything you love and were to harm the people that you love and were to even harm you, would you still follow Jesus? And praise God, she said yes. And so I baptized her as my sister in Christ. That's the type of commitment that Paul is speaking about here. By saying Jesus is Lord in first century Corinth, you are saying whatever else that I used to worship, whatever else that used to be my Lord is no longer my Lord. Another lady that we baptized on that day, she is, from her understanding, the first Christian from her village. She comes from a religion where conversion is, if not illegal, It is condemned by family members. For her to follow Christ is in effect to say, I'm setting my family, my heritage, and even some aspects of my culture behind. Because Jesus is Lord. And what it says here is that nobody can make that type of commitment apart from the Holy Spirit. You see, a true Spirit-filled word or work will always exalt Jesus. And so the first criteria that we need to ask whenever we're trying to discern whether or not this is a true word and work of God, the first criteria is, does this exalt Jesus? Because there are all sorts of words from God that you will find on YouTube or on Facebook or where we live on WhatsApp messages that they don't exalt Jesus. They exalt politics or they exalt some so-called prophet or they exalt some big-name celebrity pastor. But the question you need to ask to be a discerning Christian is, does this word or work exalt Jesus. If it does, then stay open to it. If it doesn't, cast it aside. And so in verses 4 through to 11, Paul focuses on another criteria for discerning whether or not something is a true word or work from God. Let me read these verses to us, beginning in verse 4. There are different kinds of gifts Now, in this second section, I think we actually have three subsections. Verses four through to six are clearly the first section. Notice the pattern. Different kinds of gifts, same spirit. Different kinds of service, same Lord. Different kinds of working, same God. Now, notice those three words. Spirit, Lord, God. Spirit, Son, Father. We see here that our triune God, the one God who is Father, Son, and Spirit, he equips the church with different kinds of gifts, with different kinds of workings, with different kinds of service. But the point that Paul is making in verses 4 through to 6 is that they all originate back with that one God. And so the source of these various types of gifts in the church is the triune God. But let's look at verses 8 through to 11. We'll come back to 7 in a minute. To one, there is given through the Spirit a message of wisdom. Notice that phrase, by means of the same Spirit. By the same Spirit. Spirit. By that one spirit. And in verse 11, all these are the work of the one and the same spirit. In these verses, Paul specifies various types of gifts. Now, these are not all of the spiritual gifts. And we could ask questions about whether or not all of these gifts that are listed here are still functioning in the church today. But we're not going to. I'm going to leave that for Pastor Mike. Instead, I want us to see what Paul is trying to say. Paul's not focused on that question. Paul is focused on how each of these gifts, though unique, how each of them come from the same Spirit. So in verses 4 through to 6... We have the broad categories, different workings, different gifts, different services. And in verses 8 through 11, we have these individual gifts, word of wisdom, word of knowledge, prophecy, faith, miraculous powers, healing, and so on and so forth. But all come from the same spirit, same idea. But I want to highlight one other thing in verses 8 through to 11. Two phrases. One phrase appears in verse 11. It's also in verse 7, which we'll come to in a minute. It says, to each one. What this means is that God's Spirit distributes as He chooses a spiritual gift to each one. To every believer in Christ who is a member in the church, a spiritual gift is given. Maybe more than one, but definitely one. And so there is no believer in Christ who is filled with his spirit, who does not have a spiritual gift to use. But I want to point out another phrase. Notice verses 8 through to 10. To one, a word of knowledge. To one, a word of wisdom. To one, not everyone has the same gift. Now, there are a couple of things that we could think about in relation to these two words. On the one hand, like I said, every member of the body of Christ has a spiritual gift that they can use. But since we do not have the same spiritual gift, and since it is the Spirit of God who determines who receives what, you and I have no reason to boast Yeah, you have that gift. That's pretty cool, but I have this gift. There's none of that in God's kingdom. There's none of that in the church. God has equipped each of us as God has sovereignly chosen for his purposes, for the church. There's not one that's greater than the other. Of course, Paul says later on, we should pursue certain spiritual gifts, but he never says that one gift is more important than another gift. They're all important for the church. And I think that this is a key idea. You see, you and I, we all know the Great Commission, right? Matthew 28 18 to 20. Go ye therefore into all the world and what? Oh, I thought we all knew it. Make disciples, right? make disciples. What do we think of whenever we hear that verse? If you're like most people, you think of someone going outside or maybe going to another culture and speaking to people who don't know Jesus, sharing the gospel with them. And if they put their trust in Christ, then maybe studying with them, reading the Bible with them, making a disciple of them. But I want to clarify something based on this verse and some other verses. No individual can make a mature disciple of another individual. It is the church that makes disciples. Why do I say that? Because I know I don't have every spiritual gift. In fact, based on this passage, I know that you don't have every spiritual gift. I know that you don't have every calling, I know that I don't have every calling, but I know that in a church, you have pastors and deacons and evangelists. I know that in a church, you have people with various gifts. I know that in a church, you have people who have various skills and qualifications so that coming together as a church We can use those gifts, and we can use those callings to make someone mature in Christ. It takes a church to make disciples. And so I mentioned verses 4 through to 6, and I mentioned how verses 8 through to 11 have the same idea, but I didn't talk about verse 7. This is the key verse. One well-known scholar of First Corinthians, Gordon Fee, actually says, this is the key verse for understanding all of chapter twelve through to fourteen. And it says this: now to each one, the manifestation of the spirit is given for the common good. The spirit's work serves the common good. Various gifts, one God. Various individual gifts, one Spirit. And all of these gifts, no matter what they look like, are for the common good. That is the key idea. That is the key verse that is here. This word, common good, it regularly appears in 1 Corinthians and is often translated beneficial. But I want us to look at one verse where it appears, Flip back to chapter 10, verse 33. Paul says this, beginning in the second half of the verse, For I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many. That's the word, the common good. But the good of many, so that they may be saved. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. The second criteria for determining whether or not a word or a work is truly from God is to ask the question, does it serve the common good? And in the context of 1 Corinthians, the common good that is being emphasized here is the church, right? Does it serve the church, You see, if someone claims that they have a special word from God and all it does is build up a massive YouTube subscriber following, does it serve the church or does it serve that individual? If I could write a thousand books, but it's not for the common good, who am I serving? And so the two criteria that I think that Paul wants us to see in these verses are whenever you hear of various gifts, whenever you hear of various healings or speaking in tongues or these things, and they might have formerly led you away to worship false idols, if you want to discern, is this a true word or work from God, first ask. Does it exalt Jesus? And then ask, does it serve the common good? Verse 3 and verse 7. Now, another question that might come to your mind is, how do we respond to the gracious gifts that God has given us? I'm in a wonderful biblical theology group. I get together with some brothers and sisters who are pastors and church leaders, One guy is from Iran, one guy is from China, the rest of the group is from Southeast Asia. And we get together and we read a book, and every other week we'll get together and we'll discuss a chapter from this book. Recently, recently we were reading a book called Paul and the Gift, and we were talking about the idea of gifts in the New Testament. And it's really interesting to consider how different cultures respond to the idea of being given a gift. What makes a gift great? Now, in American culture, we say a gift is great if we give it freely. We expect nothing in return, right? But not every culture views it that way. Some people might think that a gift is better if it's the first gift that it's give, that is given, or if it's the most extravagant gift that is given, or if that gift inspires the greatest response. So how might people in Corinth have responded to the idea of spiritual gifts? Well, in Corinth, it was typical if you received a gift from your master or your benefactor Or your boss, that you boasted about it. That was the key idea. You start bragging about how great it is that you got this or that. And everybody would know you didn't get that yourself, you were given that. And so indirectly, they would praise the master. Now, the Bible makes very clear time and time again we don't boast in anything but in Christ. But another idea that was common in the Roman world at this time is that whenever a gift is given, what it should inspire is greater loyalty and commitment from the one who receives the gift. And so I think that's the idea that's going on here. You receive you receive a spiritual gift from the Lord, whatever gift the Spirit distributes to you, and in response... You're further committed to exalting Jesus, to serving his church for the common good. I want to conclude with three questions that are based on the ideas of this passage. The first one is this. Are you discerning whether or not something is a true word or work from the Spirit? We see all sorts of information come our way every day on Instagram and Facebook and YouTube and Twitter and whatever other thing, you know, Netflixes? I can't even say that right. Next suggestion or, you know, what Disney Plus thinks our kids should watch next or all sorts of information. Are you discerning whether the things that come your way through social media or through other avenues from a friend or from a story you've heard, are you discerning? Is this a true word and work from God? The first two questions to ask, does it exalt Jesus? Does it serve the common good? Now, there are other criteria. A good one is, does it agree with Scripture, right? I mean, obviously, It wouldn't exalt Jesus and contradict Jesus' word, right? And so we need to make sure that we're saturated with Scripture, that we understand God's word, so that we can discern these things. But the questions that Paul wants us to ask in 1 Corinthians 12, does it exalt Jesus? Does it serve the common good? But a second question that I want us to ask is, are you exercising the spiritual gift that you've been given. It is shameful that many churches look just like the corporate world, where 20% of the people do 80% of the work. That's shameful. And why is that shameful? Because every single one of us, if we are in Christ, have been given a spiritual gift that we are to use for the common good within the body of Christ. And so that means you, every single one of you, has a gift that you can use and should use regularly for the body of Christ. And so are you using it? Have you discerned from Scripture what that spiritual gift is? And are you able to use it in a way that doesn't create disunity, but brings the church together so that together, Through exercising our spiritual gifts, we might help one another become mature in Christ. We might spur one another on to good works. But third, and this is by far the most important question, are you filled with the Spirit? Now, by wording it that way, you might think I'm asking you a charismatic question. But I'm not. We're Baptist, And so we believe that at the moment that you trust in Christ, God's Holy Spirit comes to live in you and dwell in you and lead you to all truth. And so the question that I'm really asking is, are you a Christian? There is no more important question you can ever ask. You see, God In his great love, he made the world. He made everything in the world. He made it good. He made it beautiful. He made it orderly. I mean, we can step outside, and we can look at the grandeur of the skies. We can do like the mission team last week, and we can go up to Wyoming, and you can see Casper Mountain, and you can see the Rocky Mountains, and you can see the beauty and the glory of God. But our first ancestors, and we, and every generation in between us, have seen the things of God, we've heard the things of God, and we've said, no thanks, I'd rather do it my way. I see what you're saying, God, yeah, yeah, you're pretty good at creating the world, but I have a better plan for my life. The Bible calls this sin. Sin. We hear the things of God. We see the things of God. We reject the truth of God for a truth that we claim is our own. I gave the illustration in the first service that, speaking personally, if I were to lay down on the ground and you were to take a tiny little pebble, make it as small in your mind as you want, And you were to lay one pebble on top of my body, laying there on the ground, for every sin that I have committed. It would take, what, three days, four days, until I am crushed and killed by the weight of that sin. Not to mention a lifetime. If all of my sins were laid bare before you for you to see... I mean, they couldn't fill this room. Or the room wouldn't be enough to contain all of the pebbles of my sin. But God, in his great love, while we were still sinners, he looked at us, and he looked at us in our desperate, dead state. He saw us crushed by the weight of our sin. And in his great love, He took on human flesh. And in the person of Jesus Christ, he went to the cross. And all of that weight of sin that crushed us and killed us, he took it on himself, and he was crushed, and he was killed for you and for me. But that's not the end of the story. You see, Jesus rose from the dead three days later, And whenever he rose from the dead, he proved that he had victory over sin and death. And so he could look at those of us who were dead and crushed by our sins. And even though we were dead in our trespasses and sins, he could make us alive, like Ephesians 2 says. And so this third question is the most important Are you filled with the Spirit? And what I mean by this question is, have you given your life to Jesus Christ? Let today be the day that you give your life to Jesus Christ. Do not delay any longer. Now, maybe you are somebody who has been here for a very long time. Maybe you are someone who has done the church thing ever since you were very young let me give you a story. (laughs) I was at a church in Plano, and we were, uh, one time we were asking a potential deacon candidate just to share with us the gospel, and he couldn't do it. And we asked him a little, uh, a deeper question. This guy had been a deacon at another church for 30 years, okay? And we asked him a deeper question, and we said, let's say you go down to Collin College, And you come across somebody who is not a believer in Christ, how would you tell them to become a believer in Jesus Christ? He said, Well, I'd tell them, you know, try to live a good life, be a good American. 30 years as a deacon at another church and not a believer. Is that you? Ask yourself that question. Have I truly given my life to Christ? And if you have given your life to Christ, then rejoice. And take that spiritual gift or those spiritual gifts God has given you and use them for the sake of our church. To exalt Jesus for the common good. Thank you for listening to this message from First Baptist Church of Ann Alstine. For more information about our church, visit www.fbcva.com.